You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast, a regular dose of Christ-centered encouragement to put your mind in a better place. Listen in as Pastor John Stonge shares Bible studies, interviews, training, and some of his most recent sermons. We're glad to have you with us today. You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast. I'm John Stonge, and today I have a very special guest with us. In fact, it's Phil Taylor, and uh, Phil is going to be talking to us in just a moment here about church leadership and, and things that, that highly involved volunteers will certainly find beneficial. Phil's been involved in, in leadership for quite a few years. For about 20 years, he's been involved in church leadership, and his mission is to bring vision into reality. He's been serving the local church in executive pastor roles and in lead pastor roles in churches of a variety of sizes, all throughout the country, he helps uh, with leadership cohorts. He leads those. He does individual coaching. He teaches at conferences. Phil is also an author, and Phil has written a, a, several books, one of which is Defining the Executive Pastor Role, and uh, another that he's recently written is Eldership Development from Application to affirmation. And in addition to coaching, Phil now spends most of his time helping churches with building projects, generosity initiatives, and building a culture of generosity in the local church. We'll mention this probably at the end too, but um, if you want to email him, you could email him at phil at elevategroup.us. You could also check out his blog at backstagepastors.org. But right now, join me as we welcome Phil Taylor to dwell on these things. Phil, it's great to have you with us today. Great to be here, John. Thanks for having me on the show. All right, Phil, there's one thing that I left out in uh, that introduction as I was gushing about all the awesome things you currently do and all the awesome things you've, you've already done. But you and I have a, a little bit of a history together. A little and, bit. Uh, a little why, bit. Why, don't you tell, why don't you tell our listeners uh, just how we know each other and, and maybe even how long we've known each other? Well, it all started in the... Uh the snack line during, uh, <laughs> during college orientation. Right. It and, sure uh, did. I, I think, I think I remember you saying that you, you thought I worked for the school, uh, <laughs> because I was so friendly and wel- welcoming you into the, the snack line. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we met during orientation of college and, uh, I think you were in a different room and then we ended up, you moved into our suite of rooms in the dorms. And so, Really, we ended up becoming roommates for most of four years of college, uh, along with three other guys. There were kind of five of us uh, that were roommates for most of those four years. And we were affectionately known around campus as Fun City. <laughs> this is true. Uh, it is, we were the Fun City guys, and uh, we, we did have a lot of fun. It was all good, clean fun, but uh, we did have a, a good time together. Uh, and so, yeah, so that's that's like, what, 20... 27 years ago. Doesn't that feel like weird? That? Doesn't that feel weird Very to crazy. like, like put some numbers on that? Yeah. Th- this is what yes. I remember. So, all right. So, so Phil and I, like he said, you know, we were roommates for, for essentially four years. We lived together. Uh, the two of us, three other guys, only some of us thought we were going to go into pastoral ministry. That wasn't really clear to all of us. And yet all five of us ended up going into yeah. pastoral ministry, which is kind of hilarious. But yeah, Phil was in line right in front of me. Uh, I think it was the first night of our freshman orientation yep. and, uh, and he, he turns around and he goes, hi, I'm Phil. <laughs> and, uh, I, I thought, oh, well this, this guy's very, uh, 
open and inviting here. And so we started chatting and we just decided to hang out. And Phil, I don't know if you remember this. You probably do. But Phil and I, as freshmen, our schedule lined up pretty well for most of the days of the week. And Phil and I would have breakfast together most mornings before our English comp class. And we would make a point every day to sit with different people so that we could get to know as many people as we could on campus. Do you remember doing that? Yeah, yeah, I do. So we're both yep. like introverts is what I'm trying exactly. to help people understand. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I actually am an introvert, but I fight I don't project it. being an inter- no. introvert. <laughs> I, well, you know, they say the difference between an introvert and an extrovert is that an introvert is energized by time alone and an ex- extrovert is energized by time with other people. Okay. And as much as I spend a lot of time with people, I actually am energized by time alone. So I don't know if that's true or not, but it's it's how I've always kind of experienced hey, it, it. That's going to help me frame that in my mind. So you've already taught me something. But I, I like, there we go. Yeah. So so uh, I, I wanted people to get a little bit of that background just so that they they understand our familiarity with each other and our long term friendship. The, and by the way, we should say on college, Stangi, that uh, that uh, we called you Stangi all through college. <laughs> like your name was not John; it was Stangi, and so I've continued to call you that my entire adult life. I would be disappointed if you stopped, to be honest. I don't know how I'm going to not call you Stangi on this podcast. You you are welcome to call me Stangi, as are all of our listeners. And to be honest with you, because I have such a common first name, if people actually start calling me Stangi, I will I will high five them and celebrate that because I actually feel like I have, uh, uh, you know, something something recognizable there. If someone yells John in the crowd, 30 of us turn our head. But if someone says Stangi, I know they're talking to me. Or strange, you'll answer to either one. You know? <laughs> I do. Well, my, most of my junk mail comes to me as junk. <laughs> so, Phil, tell us a, a little bit about some of the things that you're working on right now, because you're doing some really unique and special things to serve local churches that really combine how the Lord shaped you and some of the experiences that you've had over the decades. And now you're really pouring that into church leaders and, to, and, and it, into high capacity volunteers and helping churches yeah, shape a bunch yeah. of things. So tell us what you're working on. Well, this year I made a big shift uh, in ministry after 20 years of being kind of, you know, in, in the local church serving as a pastor in, in three different churches. Uh, over those 20 years. This year, I made a big shift, and I'm now putting the bulk of my time into serving the the Big C Church, the Capital C Church, we sometimes call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm helping uh, an organization called Elevate Group as we work with churches that are, um, you know, wanting to do a deep uh, a deep look at their strategy surrounding generosity and stewardship and giving. Uh, and so, you know, for me, I really believe in the church, uh, despite all of its flaws and mistakes. I really believe in the church and I want the church to be successful. Uh, and I just really firmly believe that a key part of being successful as a church is being well-funded because the, at the end of the day, resources are always needed to move the mission forward. And we, we see that even throughout scripture. And so um, I believe that if I can help churches uh, develop a more robust and effective strategy around the issues of generosity uh, and stewardship and giving um, really at the discipleship level, because that's what we're talking about when we talk about generosity and stewardship. We're talking about a discipleship conversation uh, that I can help uh, kind of exponentially move the mission of the church forward. And so that looks like a couple of different ways. Um, 
will come into a church and look at everything related to generosity, giving, and stewardship. And that's everything from the, you know, when you click on the word give on the website, what's that experience like? Uh, is it, does it feel like, uh, you know, all you do is you type in your ACH information for your, for your check? Okay, well, that's not a great experience. You know, there's an opportunity there to, to cast vision. There's an opportunity there to thank people in a really robust way. Let's say you're new at a church and, and you give for the first time. Does anything happen? And the shocking truth is that in most churches, literally nothing happens, which sends a, uh, an unwritten message that, um, hey, thanks, you owed us that. <laughs> right. Um, when, when really that shouldn't be the way that we approach, you know, the people that are uh, stepping out in faith with their finances and, and committing to the vision that you've cast. And so what happens when you give for the first time? What happens when you give a unique gift? What happens when you stop giving? Because you might've stopped giving because you lost your job. Mm-hmm. And so now that's an opportunity to step in and say, Hey, are, are you okay? Can we help? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's all these aspects related to giving. How do you approach uh, teaching on generosity and stewardship on a weekend gathering. Do you do it once every three years, once a year, every other week? <laughs> you know, like, how are you, is this like a financial shakedown where you feel like you come to church and they just kind of pick you up by your feet and shake you upside <laughs> down and see what coins fall out? Or is it like a, a genuine, like being invited into the mission and vision of the church and recognizing that there are resources involved in pulling off that mission and vision? So we look at all of those things we call it a discovery day at Elevate Group. Um, it really is kind of a misnomer. It takes a few weeks to do all that research. Uh, and then we show up for a day and, and spend some time with the leadership, looking at everything, and talking through everything, doing some teaching. And then we present a plan on how to, how to grow your strategy for generosity and stewardship um, and how to build that into something that, that just resonates with people more effectively. Uh, so we love doing that. And then, of course, you know, uh, a church will maybe once a decade or so have a really major project that they need to work on. It might be a new building project. It might be, um, you know, an expansion or a new piece of land they want to buy. Um, it might be a new campus they want to start on the other side of town and they're going to buy, you know, uh, uh, a little space or they're going to um, hire some staff to, to pull off that new campus. Or, you know, maybe they have some other thing that they want to step into that is just way beyond the normal budget year. And so you have to do, um, you know, a fundraiser. We prefer the term generosity initiative. Uh, sometimes they're called capital campaigns or building campaigns. We like the language generosity initiative. And so a church will need to step into something like that. And the interesting thing, Stangi, I, I don't know if you feel this way, but <laughs> most pastors that I meet are really not equipped well to step into a major generosity initiative in their church because they're busy doing the work of the ministry. They're busy shepherding, they're busy pastoring, they're busy preparing sermons, uh, and, and neither they nor really, in many cases, anybody on their staff have the skill set or the time to effectively step into a major generosity initiative. And so they turn to a company like ours, Elevate Group, a, a ministry organization like ours, and they say, hey, help us. So we step in for usually about a year uh, and, and prepare for that, and we help them figure out all those pieces and uh, as a result of that, they're able to then raise the needed funds to not only accomplish that once in a decade mission, but also what we hope is really uh, change the culture of generosity in the church. So we like to say that uh, we want to we want to elevate the conversation around generosity in your church. And that's why we call ourselves Elevate Group. And we bring all these specialists in 
along the way, we bring in a group specialist and a, a family ministry specialist and a, a, a specialist who looks at um, the way information is processed in your church. And we do all these pieces to really help help pastors move forward well. So I don't know if that helps explain it. Totally. Uh, and and the interesting thing about much of that is that that subject, I think most pastors would agree, is one of the touchier subjects to bring up yeah. in church. It's not, I, and I'll, I'll admit to you that for me, uh, through the years, at, at, at one certain point in particular, was a very challenging subject to bring up in my role of leadership. I just didn't like talking about it. And then I started yeah. challenging myself to talk about it more and celebrating uh, different ways that the Lord had been blessing the church. But I'll, I'll tell you, we went through a season and this maybe you could speak into this because there's probably somebody that is uh, that can understand what I'm about to share. But in 2008, we planted our church. It's a replant situation, right. and so we replanted the church in 2008. My family moved here to this community to start the church and get it going. And for the first year and a half or so, first couple of years, we had outside funding. People get really excited about a church plant during the early phases, but first then they kind of ex- yeah, first two years, right, and then. And then they that support goes away because people want to support other projects. And so, all right, so that support went away. Now, we were still also utilizing another piece of funding. The church had uh, sold a piece of property that it was able to use to fund things. But I remember when we got it about the six-year mark, the six-year mark of this plant. So we started this in 2008, and in 2014, we got to a spot where the church really couldn't pay me a full salary and sometimes couldn't pay me any salary, which was a really scary thing for me because at the time I, that was my, that was my income. I mean, that was it, you know, my salary from the church, that was my income. And I remember thinking, all right, uh, what's this going to look like? How's this going to operate? By the grace of God, things eventually worked out. It took a few years from that. There were several very lean years in our church. And uh, I'm really grateful that that in recent years that has changed. And I would say our messaging has changed. I would also say the opportunities that we've created for people to, to just express generosity, not as a budget thing. You know, we don't express like, Oh, help us meet the budget. We, we try and help people understand um, this is an act of worship. You know, we, we, we don't worship our money. We use money as one of the tools that, that we uh, utilize in worship uh, toward the Lord. We're trying to glorify Christ with our giving. And so that's uh, that's something that's important to us to talk about. But I'm wondering, you know, my scenario I don't think is unique. Do you see uh, certain circumstances that kind of resemble that or things that you would say yeah. are similar? And how do you help churches that are really struggling like that? Well, one of the first things that we will ask a church that we're working with is we'll say, okay, let's let's say that I started going to your church for the first time. Okay. And I haven't really gone to church much before this. Um, And I don't really know a whole lot about what the Bible teaches about much of anything. Right. Mm -hmm. And I certainly know nothing about what the Bible teaches about giving uh, finances, money in general. I know nothing about that. I know nothing about what the Bible teaches on these things. Would I learn it from you? If I came to your church for six months to a year, would I learn what the Bible teaches about money from you? Uh, and the reality is the answer is usually no, mm-hmm. because pastors are 
really afraid about of this. And so what this means then is that we're, we're not doing one of the biggest aspects of discipleship that we should be doing as pastors. You think about, you know, what are some of the key areas that uh, the average person is going to struggle with in their lives, right? Well, one of them is going to be money, whether it's because they don't have enough of it and it's a real problem because they, maybe they haven't utilized their money well, they've got themselves into a lot of debt or whatever it might be, or because they've got a lot of it and it's a real idol for them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can have, money can be a problem in plenty and in want. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, so what are we doing to disciple all of those people, right? And so um, oftentimes um, it seems like in churches, we either, um, we either abuse our responsibility to talk about money and we talk about it constantly. And, you know, you, you go to some churches, especially in kind of the health and wealth gospel world, right. Yeah. Where, where the, the subject of money is really abused. It's just mm-hmm. people are beaten down on a weekly basis to give as much as possible. And it's a, it's not a pretty sight, right? So that's, they're either abusing it or they're abdicating it. So we have a role as pastors to talk about finances and how, how we as Christians should operate financially. That includes the concept of giving, but it's not only the concept of giving. And so are we going to abuse that and just beat people up with it? Or are we going to abdicate that responsibility and never talk about it? And, and we shouldn't do either. You know, we should find that, that sweet spot in the middle where we are either abusing or abdicating. But it is an awkward conversation, right? It, it um, is. But I, I like the way you, you uh, frame that in regard to discipleship. You know, you're saying that that we as church leaders, if we view this through a discipleship lens, we actually can uh, use this as an opportunity to help somebody grow in in their faith, in practicing spiritual discipline, things of that nature. And so, is that is that how Elevate Group frames most of this discussion? That's right. Yeah, we we always say if if we were you know in the business of fundraising, then we would all quit because. Who cares about fundraising? You know, we right. want to help people um, grow in in their heart approach to finances, and we believe that generosity is good for your heart. And so, if generosity is good for your heart, then we ought to encourage more of it. And what that means then is that it's it's not just about what we can encourage in your local church. Like if if you're building a culture of generosity at your church, then your people are not just going to be generous at your church. They're also going to be generous with their neighbors. They're also going to be generous with other ministries in your town. And you should celebrate that and not be like, wait a minute, that belongs here at, at our <laughs> church. No, no, listen, that's great that you're being generous elsewhere as well. That's awesome. We're excited for that. Uh, and so, you know, what's interesting is um, when we when we commit acts of generosity, right, uh, it actually creates a dopamine hit for us. In the same way that like exercise would um, or winning something does like it's very strange, but the the psychologists have figured that out that when we, you know, give money to something when we, you know, do an act of generosity, we actually get a, you know, a physiological impact from it. And so if we're just being super selfish, like generosity is good for us. It, It feels good, you know. Um, and so it's, I think anybody can, I think that's why we see a lot of people who don't even have a faith stepping into generosity in a big way uh, because they've realized, Hey, this is actually kind of fun to do this. Um, 
so yeah, but so it's it's good to have an outside set of eyes looking at all of that in your church and helping you see the blind spots. You know, the nature of a blind spot is that you are, you know, blind to them. And so you're not even noticing um, it. Yeah. Yeah. And so sometimes you can kind of just get so sick of or so used to everything that's going on in your church that you don't know what's not going well. Yeah. And um you know, having an extra set of eyes for a couple of weeks looking in on things can be a big, really big help. And it it will ultimately have a big impact on on your giving. And that means that you can do more mission. That means you can do more of what you feel like you're called to as a as a church. Um, so it's important to do that. Now you you've been serving in church leadership for a couple decades. And uh, I remember when when you and I first started serving local churches fresh out of our schooling and uh, we, we were ready to go and and eager to to do a whole bunch of things. And it, it's kind of interesting how after several decades of doing that, you really experience uh, testing and time in the yeah. trenches and, and all sorts of things. And so this is a, a pretty big transition from you uh, or for you as you're serving in a new role. Uh, whereas at one point you were spending a lot of your time serving in the local church context. I know there are other things you were involved in that were serving the big C church, like you described right. it earlier. But now the your primary focus is is serving the big C church. But this mm-hmm. has been, and I, I'm kind of interested to hear you tell this story or or what aspects of this story you're willing to share with with our listeners, because I know some of the background of this ahead of time. But this has been a year of some major transition for you and a year of some major surprises, much of which has a, a pretty shocking medical component to it. And I wonder yeah. if, if maybe you'd be willing to share a little bit about some of that with us. Yeah, so it has been a crazy year. Um, I had been uh, in the process of transitioning out of uh, the church that I've been serving at for the prior eight years uh, in the Orlando area and uh, uh, had just accepted uh, this new role with Elevate Group uh, at the very end of May. I think it was May 28th that I called the guy that I work with, um, uh, Chris Willard, who started the company. I had called him, I think, on May 28th and said, hey, I'm, I'm in. I'd been interviewing at a few different places and had decided to, to, to go with Elevate Group and was excited about the mission and vision there. So that was May 28th. Uh, and then June 1st, uh, started off as a normal day. I had had a breakfast appointment with a, a pastor friend of mine, um, had a coaching phone call. I, I coach a lot of executive pastors around the country and I had a, a coaching phone call with a guy that I was uh, working with. And uh, as I got towards the end of that phone call, I, I was doing the phone call from my car because I, I had a, another meeting right after that at a coffee shop. And so I, I was going to just walk out of my car and into the coffee shop and do, do my next meeting. And as I'm sitting on this phone call, I have excruciating pain come out of nowhere uh, in my kind of shoulder. And then it shot down to my abdomen area, which I later discovered uh, was my aorta um, tearing uh, internally. And uh, that is what's now, called Phil, I'm no medical. I'm no medical expert, but are aortas important? They are. They are. Yeah. It's uh <laughs> It's uh, it's hard to live without them. So. And can I can I just say, and I, I want you to continue this story, but can I just say how relieved I am, even in this moment, that you and I are having this conversation? Because Thank from uh, the perspective of of friendship, all day June first, I was getting updates from yeah. your family and from some of our common friends 
on this this as it was transpiring. So you discover you you your aorta has torn. Now, right, now right. tell us what happened from there. So yes, I you know I found myself you know in this coffee shop bathroom trying to like stretch it out, not really knowing what was going on with my body, just knowing that I was having excruciating pain. Uh, I sensed this urge to be flat. And so I laid down on this bathroom floor, Mm. you know, public bathroom floor, trying to like get my body flat. That didn't help at all. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, I'm laying there thinking, oh shoot, I think I might be having a heart attack. And then I thought, crap, I'm going to die in a public bathroom on the floor. (laughs) Oh no! And the door's locked. They're not going to be able to find my body. <laughs> like, this is what's You're such a pragmatist. I know, You're right? Such, like, <laughs> I, I so, and you know that it it doesn't sound glorious, but there there have been other notable people that have that have experienced some not so glorious moments like that as well. But know, oh right? my goodness! All right. So yeah, what happened next? So then I uh, I you know ultimately I ended up getting up and going out into the coffee shop. I saw my friend that I was meeting there. And he took one look at me and said, you know, what is wrong with you? You know? And, mm. and I said, I have no idea. I started describing the pain to him and he said, man, I just, I just had some heart problems recently. Um, why don't I take you across the street to the hospital? And I was in so much pain that I just didn't even have the will to fight him on it. You know, and <laughs> um, I probably would have otherwise and been like, ah, I'm fine. We'll be fine. You know, <laughs> but I just didn't even have the strength to fight him on it. And so I just got in his car. And by the time we got to the hospital, I was screaming in pain. They, they threw me right into a room, did an EKG, ruled out a heart attack, did a CT scan, discovered the aortic dissection. Um, by this time, they've got me on morphine. They asked if my wife was on the way. I said, yeah, she's, she's coming here. And they said, um, how far away is she? And I said, well, we don't live too far away. And they said, look her up on your phone. And so I looked her up on the phone and I said, she's two minutes away. And they said, um, okay, I think we can wait two minutes. And I'm like, what the crap is going on if two minutes is going to be a problem? Mm-hmm. Um, so my wife came into the room and they said, you know, your husband's had an aortic dissection. They said 50% of the people who have these die before they ever get to the hospital. Mm. Those who make it to the hospital, another 50% die there at the hospital. Oh. Um, and so they said, we need to do surgery on you right away. Um, and my wife said, is there any other options? And they said, yeah, death. That's your other option. Um, so uh, 10 minutes later, uh, I was in a helicopter. Um, my kids arrived just as the helicopter was about to take off. And so because Amy, my wife had called them and said, you need to get here to say goodbye to your dad. Like, goodbye. <laughs> like, you may not see him again. And so I said goodbye to my kids through a helicopter door. Um, my kids are 18, 16 and 13. And I said goodbye to my wife, uh, you know, believing that I, there was a sizable chance that I wasn't going to make it through the day, you know, told her where to find all the important files at home in case I did die and, uh, went off for 10 hours of open heart surgery. I guess technically it's not considered open heart. It's open chest surgery, but nonetheless, they took a saw to my, my rib cage and cut me open like a walnut (laughs) and, uh, you know, uh, replaced a portion of my aorta with a fabric, like kind of a Kevlar material is what I've been told. Um, and you know, in theory that lasts for the rest of my life. Um, I had two weeks of, uh, in the hospital, I had another surgery due to complications, and then, um, three months of hardcore recovery at home and another three months of kind of lighter recovery. And in some ways I'm still in recovery, 
Um, yeah. But all that really means is that like, I take a lot more naps than I used to, you know, at this point, <laughs> it's kind of the, the big impact of it. So, wow. uh, but uh, yeah, it's been a crazy six months. It's six months, actually, actually six months to today when we're recording is when this happens. So yeah, you're yeah. right. Wow. Yeah. I, I remember, I mean, my, uh, I just had a knot in my stomach all day waiting for the next <laughs> update, waiting for the next update. Uh, we were asking our church to pray. I was asking everybody I could think of, please pray for my friend, Phil, you know, and, and in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, Lord, like, I, I don't know what your will is, but, but please, please keep him around. And, mm-hmm. uh, and just thinking this is the most serious medical thing that I had heard of, of happening to anyone in any recent day that was still, that there was still hope that you would survive it. And, right. uh, and I thought, boy, I mean, the, you know, the news we were getting was just so grim and it was just so just so frightening to hear all of that. And, and it's also kind of interesting to be in a spot. And I know that you felt this and your family felt it. Just one of those moments, even as a friend, where you look at it and you're like, literally, the only thing we can do is just pray and ask more people to pray. And, yeah. and so when you and I were talking maybe about a month ago, we were talking about just how many people you estimated were probably praying for you. I know we had a whole bunch here in the Northeast and you're down in Florida and uh, tell me, you know, what the estimate you, you uh, came to happened to be. And, and I mean, I uh, think it's somewhere prayer there. I think it's somewhere in the 20 to 30,000 range of people. Mm -hmm. And I, and I get that because, you know, I would, I was getting reports from people over the next couple of months where they would say, Hey, we, you know, we sent out an email to our whole church to be praying for you. And I happen to know that like their church is 4,000 people, you know, right. <laughs> um, or, you know, Hey, we, we put a note out to all the pastors in our network of pastors mm-hmm. and that's 700 pastors, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're passing it on to their people. So I mean, I'm getting messages of people that I don't, I don't know them who, I don't know who they are, you know, they're, but they're like connected to a person who's connected to a person who's connected to a person. And they're like, oh yeah, we had 20 people praying for you in our small group or whatever. Um, so it was just crazy the the ripple effect that that had. Um, and you know, and I mean, in a weird way, like then my story becomes an encouragement to all of those mm-hmm. people because they all want to find out what happened, you know. But I think you know, there's there's obviously the power of prayer, and there's you know, and I do believe that 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 had a big impact on on the the uh the the story of that day but it was cool to even just see like in my family the faith that god kind of gave them um maybe a month later uh our 13 year old son who's uh he's he kind of has a real tender heart mm-hmm. and he said uh he, he said maybe a month later he said i, I knew you weren't gonna die dad and mm-hmm. and i my wife and i were like well why did you know that and he said, well, you know, um, you said earlier in the year that you felt like God said to you that when you came through the next season of life and ministry, that he, ha- that he had something for you on the other side of that. Hmm. And so God doesn't lie. And so if he had something for you, he couldn't let you die in that moment. Hmm. Like it was just a real simple mathematical equation for him. You know what I mean? Like, like it doesn't make sense. God's already told dad that there's something coming up. So how could there right. be something coming up? He's like, yeah, I'm just n- not going to stress about it. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and my wife the whole day felt like, nope, you know, he's, he's not going to die today. Right. 
this is not going to be the end of his journey. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but then of course there's like 20 people in the waiting room and they're all Googling aortic dissection no. next to each other going, Holy crap. Did you read this? Like he's a goner. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, I mean, you know, one of, one of, uh, one of the staff members from our, our last church, uh, her, her daughter is an ER nurse. And, um, she, she called her daughter and said, Hey, you know, pastor Phil, he had an aortic dissection. And her daughter said, wait, did you say aortic dissection? Mm. And, and she said, yeah. And, he, and she said, her, this woman happens to plan the funerals at our church. And she said, um, start planning his funeral, mom. He's, he's dead. He's going to die. Wow. Like, she's like, I never see anybody make it through these things. Oh, wow. So, you know, it was, that was, that was the reports that people were getting throughout. the yeah. day, you know? So anyway, so I definitely feel like, you know, I, I was spared for some purpose and I'm, I'm trying to trying to live, live up to that. So, and, and how cool that, you know, I mean, I'm just so relieved, first of all, that the Lord chose to to answer our prayers in regard to that, and uh, that He's given you this season, and that you get to spend it serving His people, and that yeah. that's an ex- yeah. that's an exciting thing. And I know, you know, I've known you for a very long time now. We're getting close to that thirty year mark. We're not there mm-hmm. yet, though. But we've yep. known each other yep. a really long time. We know each other way too well, um, <laughs> uh, and. Uh, it's just, it, it, this has been your heart the whole time I've known you, you know, you, you grew up in a context where you saw the inside baseball of local church life. You saw all its warts and all its, all its good parts. Uh, I know that, uh, your father in particular, uh, is, uh, someone that served in pastoral ministry for many decades. And, and there are certain things that I, how many years? 50 years. Yeah, there are certain things that I have in my mind in regard to pastoral yeah. ministry and how to conduct myself as a pastor that I heard from you because you heard it from your dad. And there yeah. are things in my mind that just kind of became part of my pastor DNA that uh, I learned from your family and just the the trench work you guys have done in uh, church ministry. And so I, I do appreciate that. But I, I thought it, it might be fun here to finish up our time with something a little bit lighter. Okay, so we've talked about the ministry you're working on. We've talked about this. Talked about death. Yeah, we talked about this. This almost death experience, although it's I don't know. Should we even call it that? Because it was never the Lord's plan to to take you. And so I really it was just a a medical thing, not an almost death, right? Um, And uh, but but let's just finish up with something a little bit lighter. And I don't know what Phil is going to say here, so I I'm gonna I'll. I'll start us off here. I, I, I asked Phil before we started recording, I said, Phil, if you have any interesting college memories, like anything fun that, that you think is, uh, you know, would be interesting to share and, and uh, just reminisce about that, that maybe uh, we could share that as we finish up today. So I don't know if anything comes to your mind right off the bat. There's a, about a million things that, that come to my mind, but I'll I'll uh, I'll give you a second to ponder it, but here's one that that involved you and I together. You and I got engaged to our wives right around the same time, and uh, I remember the guys <laughs> in our dorm thinking that they would bless us with dinner. But this is how they blessed yeah, us. Yeah, we had a combined right. <laughs> we had a combined. Yeah, congrats on your engagement party. dinner. Yeah. So the guys basically like they they just stormed, you know, picture a whole dorm of guys storming into our dorm room and right. uh, and tying us up really, and like ab- abducting us. Really? Yeah, it, it was it was violent. It was brutal. <laughs> it was there brutal were ropes and violent. Involved. 
and and they dressed us up in women's clothing That's and right. they they put wigs not on like, us not like modern women's clothing <laughs> like they had gone to the thrift store and bought like something that your grandmother would have worn and so i i remember wearing like a like a very thick polyester dress <laughs> yeah. that like felt like it might have been purchased in 1972 oh it, and, it, it and, and a really big wig <laughs> yes. yeah and there was nothing we could do about it. And and did they no. even put like I in my mind they put makeup on us? Like they, they really lipstick. did it up. Yeah. And then yeah. yeah, and then they brought us out to the parking area in between all the dorms to basically parade us in front of everybody. Right. And I right. thought, oh, this is terrible. And I'm trying to be a good sport, but I, I'm not always a good sport when it comes to <laughs> stuff like that. I wish I could tell everybody that I was, but in my mind, I'm like, this is so annoying. Like this is the worst. And there really wasn't yeah. anything we could do about it when a mob of people decide right. to tie up you could put up a fight we put up a fight but eventually we all knew the outcome was going to be what it was and then they took us tied up to a restaurant Denny's. and treated Denny's. us to dinner you know, it was a pizzeria uno it's pizzeria uno they oh, took was us. it yeah I feel like right by the oxford valley mall yeah <laughs> and uh and they Didn't at they least treated us, us to a too. meal what's that i think they gave us nicknames too I, they probably did but i remember being called mind. cookie throughout the night <laughs> <laughs> I, you know that sounds vaguely familiar but i think that that goes too deep into into like the scarring of the event and uh, i've probably blocked it out <laughs> i remember being at pizzeria uno you know dressed as a woman um <laughs> and and the waitress came over and 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 she was kind of like smiling and I, I don't know that she was necessarily the the brightest person in the world and she she said uh so who's Whose bachelor party is it? And I, and I just kind of like look down at me and I'm like, are you kidding? Like, it, <laughs> obviously, it, I don't dress like this all the time. <laughs> take a look around, see who's dressed normally. And, read the room. Uh, read the room. Yeah, read the room. Oh, all right. So that's one that, that stands out in my mind, a somewhat traumatic experience for the two of yeah. us uh, that well, we shared you, together. You left out some of the, the best parts of that night, though. When oh, they no. tried to, I probably purposely left them out. Well, do you remember when they tried to drown us in the pond afterwards? <laughs> remember they pushed us into the duck pond? <laughs> that that is well. So in my mind, that's a that's a separate story. That's a, I feel that's like something... I was in a dress though when it happened. So well, that's... no, that that did happen to you, but that was one that I participated in uh, with our just our roommates against oh. you <laughs> and then i because i remember sneaking home and hiding in a closet and you guys were like freaked out that something we had, had no idea what me. happened to you we're like uh-oh did we lose phil <laughs> <laughs> that was a different night okay I, <laughs> that was I had a those different two night. conflated <laughs> <laughs> well they're both very similar experiences and both equally terrible in in their own right but yeah, yeah so all right so that all right, I've primed the pump. Phil, what do you got for I, us? What I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me is the happy rap party. <laughs> all you right. Remember the happy rap party? And, and to give context, we were in we were in a Bible college. Like this whole bunch oh, of yeah. us training for right. for ministry here. And so, yes, I do remember the happy rap, but but what was it? You, you know, your your options for fun on a Bible college campus <laughs> are relatively limited. <laughs> they um, sure are. And and you know, like like we wanted to have fun, but we, you know, we weren't like the kind of people that were trying to like sneak beer into our rooms. You know what I mean? Like that just wasn't right. who we were, you know? No, of course. Um, not. And, and, but we would, we would, we were definitely the the social center of the campus for a certain period of time. And, uh, and so we would, we would host parties in our, in our 
dorm. And really, when you think dorm, think like like four bathroom-sized rooms <laughs> um, with like a small hallway adjoining them. You oh, know? yeah. Um, and, and one night, we hosted a, a party that we called the Happy Rap Party. And we called it the Happy Rap Party because we used all like early 1980s rap, <laughs> like, like early 1980s Christian rap, like I don't know. Well, you're the you're the RB guy. You you probably remember some of the early stuff. So I I yeah I remember uh, some ETW and I remember uh, some D Boy Rodriguez. D Boy, D Boy, Funky Fresh from Puerto Rico. Yeah, like the yeah. So stuff like that that we really enjoyed. You know, from from back in the day. Yeah, a little a little early DC talk maybe. Yeah, probably some early DC talk for sure. Yeah. So so we we only played early early rap happy rap because it was before it became gangster rap right <laughs> yeah so that's true. um and and so that was all we played and everybody just like showed up at like i don't know 11 p.m like 75 people in the <laughs> tiniest rooms and just jumped around and had a stupid time and then everyone just disappeared in a matter of seconds and it was meant to be over and just <laughs> it was like a it was like a flash mob in our dorm room you know? yeah was, pretty much and then the the guy who was in charge of the dorms, who unfortunately lived directly below us, Scott, Lee, <laughs> um, you know, came, came upstairs and was like, "What are you guys doing?" I remember he was like in his boxers, like he's trying to sleep. You know what I mean? So, yeah, well, that was a good one. That was a good one, and uh, I'll add one additional memory to that. They so they gave out work hours to all the guys that they knew that participated in it. And there were right. so many people that participated in this that they ran out of work assignments. So I remember when it was my time to get a work hour, I didn't actually get one because the guys were, yeah, they were like, we, we ran out of things. Like, like we can't think every of, guy on campus. Yeah. Like, basically. like everybody living up in those dorms was at this event. And so they, uh, they removed it, but eventually they started embracing our, yes. uh, our wing of the dorm and they, they realized, all right, and I agree. I don't think it's a stretch to say that at one point that beca- that did become the social center of uh, of the campus yeah, for that season. Right. And the when they recognized that, they started bringing prospective students on tours mm-hmm. through our dorm be- and oh. specifically our rooms because they thought, all right, we want them to see just how fun it can be at this college. And we think that this will help uh, other students consider coming here. Well, do you remember one time they actually gave us a budget? Yes. Yeah. They gave us like a $250 budget mm-hmm. for a prospective student weekend. And they said, right. plan something fun. <laughs> like off the books, plan something fun. Yeah. And so we, we planned, was that the night, was that the time we did that? Like, like weird, uh, um, like talent show out in between the dorms. That could have, that could have been. That, and I that remember was like, well attended. There were like Jeremy and Paul were like dressed with like toilet paper all attached to their bodies and like the wind was blowing on their toilet paper bodies <laughs> everywhere and there was just all sorts of weird stuff that we had planned. It was like a it was like a skit show or something, but it was like this is, a lot yeah, of it this was is what people strange. did before the internet. You know, before the right, internet, exactly. we actually had to be like, uh, you know, like the the quick YouTube video. You know, you had to actually do right, something. Right. right? I remember I was the DJ for, for that, things, which was fun. That's right, you were. The promotion for these things was like, it was totally like 1990s underground, right? Like, oh, yeah. You would just, you would see like a 12 point font <laughs> in the middle of a sheet of paper and it would just say, Fun City Midnight. And you'd, you, we would paper the whole campus with them. Like, we'd put them on the billboards or 
on the soda machines in the cafeteria. And within like three hours, the whole campus would be a buzz. Like, your fun city's doing something tonight at midnight, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and people would just show up out of the woodwork for it, you know? So that was yeah, fun. Was, do was do you remember times. our, I, and I know you remember this because I think you still have some pictures of it, which if I could get these from you at some point, I'd, I'd love to get these. And th- this is where I'm going to finish this up today here because I think it'll be a, sure. a, a fitting a fitting end to our time together. But do you remember the first fun city Christmas party that we hosted in the, in the dorm? And uh, we we invited we everybody everybody was invited because we we were allowed to have women in the dorm that night right yeah they said we'll we'll allow it right so they they allowed it and we also invited members of the school administration and our professors and the president (laughs) of the university and and all of this and uh, we we set this up so you picture uh, picture a square and then picture four rooms on each corner of that and then a hallway that splits it right down the middle. And it's not very large. And no. every inch of that space was filled with people. And yeah. and like, I have no idea. It's like when I look back at, at certain things from the 50s, do you ever see where they would try and cram as many people as they could into a phone right. booth? Well, that that's what it was the, like with, with these dorm rooms in the early oh, There 90s. would be four people standing in the shower having a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> like, I have that pictures of sound people standing in a but... shower, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it was like, ridiculous. It was crazy, but that was, but it was time. so fun. Like it was so fun. It was good, clean fun. We had, we had a good time and it was pretty cool when we went from being people that the, the school administration was a little bit leery of to all of a right. sudden. When, and I think that I bet you that Christmas party probably turned it around because so many of them yeah. came to it. I think they I realized got a leadership that, scholarship out of that. Did you really? I got a five. The school gave you money scholarship out of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know that. No, oh, yeah. you were good. Yeah. Oh, all right, Phil. Wait a second. All right. We have to. I want you to tell one more story before we truly wind this down, because you just a good example of your leadership skill was put on display when you worked at Eddie Bauer our freshman year and uh, the Eddie Bauer corporate was coming in to examine the store oh, and I remember take the that. story from there. So if I remember the story correctly, we needed like 20 people like to come into the store. We had a new floor reset. I was like an associate manager with Eddie Bauer at the, what was the name of that mall? The, uh, the Willow Grove mall. Ru- Willow Grove mall. Yep. And I needed like 20 people to come in and basically unpack like 300 boxes and set everything up. And so I just went around the whole, like all of our friend group, like fun city and, well, even before uh, you, you say know. that, the, the the manager there said, oh, she was all stressed. And she's like, what are we going to do? How are we going to get this set up before corporate came? And you said to her, do you want me to get some people to do this? And she said, you could get people. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could get tons of people. And like, now how many you want? She's like, how many you people? Want? And I'm like, I, I brought 20 people in <laughs> to, to Eddie Bauer. And, and we everyone got paid like 10 bucks an hour or something. And, <laughs> and uh, we knocked it out in, the, in over like four hours between like you know, 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. or something like that. It was just, um, it was just it, hilarious. You, you're, you're, you just went around campus. You're like, hey, anyone want to work at Eddie Bauer tonight? And we just <laughs> packed out that Eddie Bauer. And I, I, I still remember the, the normal employees that worked there looking at this. They're like, who are all these people? And you just <laughs> filled it up with a whole bunch of people from campus. We're all like, all right, what do you need us to do? And we're all, right. you know, setting up displays, unpacking boxes, doing all this. We came in like a whole bunch of elves. <laughs> set up the store and then we're out and then they offered me a job from it through you 
through you, <laughs> but then I ended up working there, you know, for several months after that, right? Through I forgot the, the, that you worked there, actually. Yeah, well, I totally it was forgot that you worked time. there. Yeah. You know, but it, just for a little bit, they, they're like, hey, do you want to work here this season? And so I did. And uh, yeah, so you got, Phil, you got me a job my freshman year. Thanks, I could have started a temp agency. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like a, a temp agency that specializes in a mob of people coming <laughs> and, and taking care of one specific task. And uh, yeah, but that was fun. We, we had a very good time. Phil, you, you have been a great friend, one of my best friends for the past 27 years. And I, I'm really grateful that we were able to have this discussion today. Super grateful for the, the ways in which you've been serving the church uh, for, for your entire adult life. But now you have a new way of doing that. And I hope that a lot of churches, as they're listening to us today, will take advantage of uh, just reaching out to you and, and, um, and connecting with you. I know that your, your email address is phil at elevategroup.us. And they could also check out your blog at, at backstagepastors.org. Any other ways that they might be able to connect with you? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram if you want, uh, Phil Taylor XP. Um, you can also follow Backstage Pastors on Instagram. It's at Backstage Pastors. And then the same for Facebook, uh, forward slash Phil Taylor XP and forward slash Backstage Pastors. And uh, if you are you know doing the LinkedIn thing, it's uh, forward slash Phil Taylor XP. So that's kind of the, the handle for everything, but uh, yeah, love to love to talk with with you. What you know, if you're a church leader, love to talk with you about um, what it what it looks like to dig into generosity more. And I would even say to a lay leader, you know, uh, gosh, if your church, if you know your church is struggling with the generosity area, um, and you are a normal middle class person, pay for a discovery day for your church as a gift, and uh, it will have a pretty significant impact on the trajectory of your church in a lot of ways. So uh, yeah, love I'd love it. to talk with you about that. Awesome. Hey, you know, well, we ought to do Stangi. We yeah, let's hear do it. A, we should do a, uh, all, all five of us college roommate carry this conversation <laughs> on. We'll get Paul and Jer and uh, Darren and the five of us, we could continue this uh, college rumination. So, oh my goodness. Yeah. We didn't, be dangerous. we did not all realize we were going to serve in pastoral ministry, but all five of us have, and uh, it's been interesting. I get to see uh, Darren and, and Jeremy pretty regularly. So yeah, you and yeah. you and Paul, I don't get to see quite as regularly because of distance, but it was awesome to be able to hang out today. And uh, Phil, thanks so much for the work you're doing. Thanks for the the, the value that you shared uh, for us today. And uh, again, we, we wish you all the best on your continual recovery and just the ministry that you're providing to the local church. Thanks, man. Same for you. What do you do when your world is falling apart? How do you march when it would be easier to stay where you are and die? Join me every week on the March or Die podcast, and we'll discuss that and so much more.